Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program about cars and culture. I'm David Brown, and in this program we have news stories including the new VW strategy for a single platform, battery cell and software system. And Spain is to invest big in electric vehicles and batteries. And in our feature item, are you frustrated by the time you have to wait for signals to change, particularly if there's a pedestrian phase, whether you're in a car or walking, or how little time you have to cross, or if the lights change and no one is there? We investigate the developments in traffic signals to measure and react to pedestrian movements. In our feedback, we talk about one of the pictures we put on social media that has resonated strongly. And in our quirky news, Brian Smith discusses hyper-performance cars like Bugattis, which the VW Group has pushed to the side. Now, there's always more information at drivenmedia.com.au, including previous programs, which are also available as podcasts on Spotify and iTunes. Or there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City Driven Media. So, away we go. Let's have the news. The Volkswagen Group has announced a new overall business strategy with the goal to move most of their vehicles to a single platform, battery cell and software system. Software is very important to VW, who wants to transform itself into a software-led company. They have created a new division, Cariad, which will handle everything from infotainment to over-the-air updates to customer profiles and eventually self-driving capability. Volkswagen has hinted that cars in the future may have a pay-as-you-go system based on minutes or kilometres, similar to how you would pay for a taxi. Cariad is also developing a mobility platform covering all different services, from renting, subscription to sharing and ride-hailing. And they have intensified their efforts to establish more charging locations for electric vehicles. The Spanish government is committing large funds to electric vehicles and battery production for its economic recovery and job creation scheme. It has allocated 4.3 billion euro towards kickstarting production, but it is also banking on private funds to contribute a much larger 19.7 billion euro. They hope to turn Spain into the European hub for electromobility with this being Spain's main industrial transformation project, as it strives to recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. It's hoped the new stimulus package will help create as much as 140,000 new jobs. Spain is currently the second largest manufacturer in Europe, behind Germany, and the ninth largest in the world. The vehicle manufacturing sector represents 11% of Spain's total industrial turnover and is the fourth largest export sector in the country, representing 15% of total Spanish exports. Dutch electric vehicle developer Squad Mobility has unveiled a working prototype of its electric quadricycle powered by its own solar panels. It is targeted at urban mobility as a small, smart city car. It looks like an upmarket golf buggy, with some versions showing a totally enclosed cabin. It also has swappable batteries. Squad Mobility say they have plans to come to Australia, although they qualify this by adding that it will depend on the interest shown in their device. 
BMW's first electric scooter will arrive in Australia early next year. It will be priced from $20,350 and will have a 130km range. It comes with automatic stability control and ABS Pro enhanced traction and safety. BMW say that when the battery is completely flat, charging time lasts 4 hours and 20 minutes when using a typical 10 amp charger. With a 30 amp quick charger, an option costing $1,330, charging time is reduced to just 1 hour and 40 minutes from when the battery is flat. A 10 and a quarter inch color screen with integrated map navigation and advanced connectivity is also on offer. Living Streets, a UK charity for walking, is launching a campaign to rid Britain's pavements of clutter. Poorly placed bins, advertising boards and excessive signage can clutter pavements and make it hazardous for people to get around. The recent increase in e-bikes, e-scooters and on-street dining has seen more space taken away from pedestrians. Cluttered pavements can be particularly difficult for people with wheelchairs, buggies or guide dogs. Living Street's research finds that it can also impact on everyone's desire to walk more, with a YouGov poll finding that over a third of people say they would visit their high street more if pavements were less cluttered. And finally, the Welsh Government has confirmed plans to reduce the national default speed limit from 30 miles per hour to 20 miles per hour on residential roads and busy pedestrian streets as one of its legislative priorities for the year. Despite being committed to the legislation, the Welsh Government has launched a 12-week consultation process for people to have their say on the change. The key to success might be just which roads are defined as busy pedestrian streets. The village St Bride's Major in the Vale of Glenmorgan is one of the areas taking part in the first phase. Duncan Montram, head teacher of the local primary school, is quoted as saying, Both the school and local community are delighted to be playing such a prominent role in this exciting initiative. He went on to say, Pupils have been involved in this project from the start, taking part in a competition to design road signs that appear around the village, while a local residence group has also made their support clear from the outset. And that has been the news. Back in the 70s, the New South Wales Government Roads Department pioneered a traffic signal control system that could adapt to the immediate traffic conditions and including coordination with nearby intersections to give the peak traffic flow a series of green lights in many situations. SCATS has since been used around the world and the government has just announced a $60 million project to update it. This appears to be positive. It is critical, however, that the upgrading of SCATS is driven by an understanding of people and their behaviour. Understanding new technologies is not enough on its own. Let's look at one of the often overlooked aspects of traffic signal operation. While we have been a leader in the field of signals that adapt to the vehicles on the road, one of the most frustrating and time-delaying aspects of signal control is that we do not adapt the system for different situations in regard to pedestrians. There are many products that can now do a much better job of detecting pedestrians, but we need first to look at the realities of how the current system works and how people are, or are not, 
coping with it. All the elegant technology is wasted or even counterproductive unless we have a system that people actually use effectively. Our consulting traffic engineer to this program, Alan Finlay, has worked in the area for many, many years. G'day, Alan. G'day, David. How does the current system detect vehicles? The cars are detected by loop detectors in the roadway. It's a loop of wire buried just below the surface of the road, and it acts as a metal detector and advises or tells the traffic signal controller that there is a a vehicle waiting for a a green light. And then once the light turns green, it measures uh, how many vehicles are using the, the green signal and how closely spaced they are. So if every pedestrian wore steel cap boots, we might have a chance? I think they'd need a little bit more steel than, uh, than just the steel cap boots. <laughs> yeah, that needs to be a fairly solid lump of metal to work on the, uh, on the vehicle detector. What are some of the common myths or misunderstanding about pedestrian lights? Well, firstly, pedestrians are, at the moment in New South Wales are only detected by push buttons. So the pedestrian has to push a button for the crossing that they wish to use. Having said that, right at the moment, there are a lot of signals that have had covers placed over the push buttons because of the COVID-19 situation. And at those signals, there is an automatic demand placed every cycle for the pedestrian crossing. Contrary to usual pedestrian behaviour or sometimes observed pedestrian behaviour, the number of times you push the button does not make the pedestrian green signal come up any more quickly and nor does it extend the length of the pedestrian green signal. I must tell that to my children. (laughs) Yes, it's a very popular pastime and um, that's why some years ago the authority had to design a more rugged push button which was resistant to uh, constant thumping and also resistant to other uh, vandalising techniques such as chewing gum and matchsticks. The amount of green time, the green person, typically a man as it turns out, but the green person that comes up, that is both a scientific fact, but also a worry to many people. Some pedestrians perceive that the green signal is not long enough because they expect that green signal to remain for their complete crossing of the road. The green walk signal is really intended just to get pedestrians off the curb and underway. In theory, it could be as short as two seconds. But in practice, of course, sometimes pedestrians are distracted. So generally speaking, that walk signal or the green person signal is set for about six seconds as a minimum. One of the other systems that they've implemented in some cases is a number countdown that it actually says you've got 10, 9, 8 till it stops. Where are they applied? In New South Wales at the moment, that type of countdown timer is applied at intersections that have exclusive pedestrian phases, either a scramble crossing, which allows pedestrians to cross diagonally, or one where there are exclusive pedestrian phases, but they don't have that that diagonal crossing. There might be one or two other locations where there are high numbers of pedestrians in comparison to vehicle traffic, and they want to ensure that pedestrians understand exactly how much time they have to complete the crossing. How effective is it? Is it a good idea and why do they limit it? I guess the downside potentially is that some pedestrians may believe that they can run very fast and that therefore they're still happy to um, start their crossing when there's only two or three seconds remaining on the on the signal display. But I guess most pedestrians would 
make a, a sensible judgment in terms of whether they can complete it or whether they should wait until the next crossing opportunity comes up. So it's a countdown to when you should finish the crossing, not when you should start it. Oh, absolutely. These The countdown timers that we use in New South Wales are an indication of how much time is remaining before there is a conflicting green signal given. It does take a judgment on how quick you are, which may be not a parameter that I'm good at judging. COVID has shown us that the need for adaptation can be thrust upon us unexpectedly. I asked Alan about a suggestion that every signal call up the pedestrian phase every time to avoid people having to press the button. Is that a simple and effective way to go about doing things? It's simple in the sense that uh, it would negate people needing to push the button, but it's actually counterproductive for pedestrian delay. Every time a pedestrian feature is introduced, because of the fairly conservative walking speed that's assumed, that means that the associated phase needs to stay up for the whole of the walk time and the clearance time. That's the flashing red person time. Whereas if there was just one vehicle using the associated phase, it can be quite short. The minimum green provided for vehicles is typically only six seconds. If there's a crossing associated or a pedestrian feature associated with that phase, then the phase time is typically more like six seconds plus, to use that example before, another 10 seconds. So we're talking about a 16-second phase rather than perhaps a a 10-second phase. Hmm. So that doesn't sound like very much, but that will increase the cycle time of the intersection, particularly if there are many phases at the intersection. And that means that there are fewer opportunities per hour for the pedestrian to cross. So it's actually counterproductive in terms of uh, pedestrian delays. It's also counterproductive if there's a strong pedestrian movement say east-west but not much north-south but it's still calling up north-south all the time. Yes that's right although we should concede here that in the Sydney CBD of course there are many more pedestrians generally than in suburban areas and in fact the Sydney CBD operates and has done for a number of years on an automatic introduction principle whereby uh, during business hours In a core area of the Sydney CBD, all of the pedestrian features are introduced automatically. There is no need to to push the button. But outside peak hours, when pedestrian volumes are lighter and traffic volumes are lighter, it reverts to push-button operation. I love the comment by one of the people that were a major influence in developing the SCAT's adaptive vehicle system, who said, particularly out in the suburbs, calling up the pedestrian phase every time is like getting in a lift and finding all the floor buttons have been pressed. And you can understand the frustration of motorists uh, or drivers when they're up at an intersection and they're sitting at a red light and they're watching the flashing red pedestrian signal on their conflicting movement flashing away, but there's not a pedestrian in sight. Hmm. So that then potentially leads to red signal disobedience and that's the last thing we need because it's already fairly rampant in New South Wales. What would you like to detect with pedestrians? Well, ideally, we'd like to know, first of all, whether there is a pedestrian there and importantly, whether that pedestrian intends to cross that road in a particular direction or whether they might just be walking along the footpath and have no intention of crossing. 
And then secondly, it would be nice to know how many pedestrians there are and what their intended directions are. So that gives us an opportunity to determine whether it's necessary to increase the, the duration of the green signal. And the walking speed would be nice to know because if you knew that it was a bunch of very fit school children who were walking much more quickly than 1.2 metres per second, it might be possible then to shorten the flashing red period or the clearance time. But that is a fairly dangerous thing to contemplate. We will talk about the dangers of getting it wrong at the end of this feature. The value of information is not just to manage the immediate situation. Data is an essential input to planning and overall management of the system. So we may have an automatic method that can detect that at least one pedestrian is present. But there is a big difference in then assuming you know exactly how many were there. It depends on the purpose for the data. If the data is just to determine whether there's somebody present, e.g. at an intersection traffic signals, it might be fine just to know they're present. Whether or not there's one or six may not matter. But if the data is to be used more extensively, then it matters a lot. John has seen in the past the problem of masking. A number of the different data sensors that are utilised to uh, record events tend to have the potential to hide the events one behind the other. Like you could have a, a small car or a medium truck hiding behind a large truck. Yes. You could have a mass of people move past the sensor, which might be 10, 10 people, and we record two. The problems that inaccurate or even bad data can cause are exacerbated if we pass on numbers without adequately describing how it was collected and what were the conditions at the time. It goes to the core of what's wrong with data and databases. We generally don't flag the data and mark it with the context by its purpose for which it was collected and to qualify what could be wrong or the limitation on the use of the data because data is usually collected for a particular context of application. We might think that the advent of artificial intelligence will smooth out the problems, but John knows otherwise. He recently made a presentation to a major institute meeting. He referred to a TED talk by Mainak Mazumda, a data and research expert, on his concerns about the impact of artificial intelligence. Well, there were two quotes that stood out for me. One was, as a data scientist, I'm here to tell you it's not the algorithm, but the biased data. He also said spending time and money to scale AI at the expense of design and collecting high-quality and contextual data. They're, they're two items that matter in terms of getting good data outcomes. And finally, back to the poor pedestrian trying to cross the road. We mentioned the danger of misreading the pedestrian's situation. Alan Finlay takes up the story. As we know, the green signal doesn't mean that you have unfettered right to drive through the intersection. The, the law says that you must always drive with care and proceed only if it's safe to do so. But as you say, if someone's approaching an intersection and the signal turns green and they're already travelling at speed, then uh, more than likely that, that driver is going to proceed through the intersection at that same speed traffic stopped for the pedestrian you go up the inside lane you might not be thinking about the pedestrian crossing absolutely yeah that's a very dangerous situation 
Next week we'll touch on just a few stories about how some government people looked at other ways to help pedestrians and what the research tells us about human behaviour. You're listening to Overdrive. Ah, and just a bit of feedback. I posted a cartoon on our Facebook site, Overdrive City Driven Media, that portrayed some geese quietly approaching a tunnel and then, when in the tunnel, they started honking loudly. They leave the tunnel and go quiet again. I noted that the same effect is seen when F-type Jaguars with an exhaust button opened, McLaren and Maserati drivers go through a tunnel and wind their window down and rev their engine. Quite a number of people have left comments on various sites where the post has been shared. Comments include Matt who said it also happens with fire truck sirens. Ricardo said I honk the horn as you go through the tunnels like my dad did. Fred, not our Fred, said I had a convertible in LA. Whenever I went through a tunnel with the top down, there was a lot of honking. Coincidence? Stephen said I had an XK120M, lovely old Jaguar. One day we got home and it was hot and covered with bugs. An immediate wash job was in order. While washing, one of my friends, inverted commas, stuck the hose up the tailpipe. And after that, when you stepped on the throttle, it sounded like the Tower of Power trumpet section. Chad said, or a good old American V8 with three-inch Flowmaster exhaust. And finally, Fiontan said, back when I drove a motorbike, any time I went into a tunnel, I used to hit the kill switch off and on to make it backfire out the exhaust. It used to make quite an impressive boom. So do you or did you go out of your way to make a noise in a tunnel? Send us an email at feedback at drivenmedia.com.au And of course you can see the cartoon on our Facebook page, Overdrive City Driven Media. You're listening to Overdrive. With the increasing dominance of SUVs in sales figures, it's good to see that some wagons are still available on the market. Volkswagen has just released the Passat 206 TSI 4Motion R-Line wagon, a mouthful for a lot of car. The Passat is an excellent, spacious family wagon with good performance for spirited driving along with all-wheel drive safety and handling. Volkswagen has a number of other wagons that you could look at as well. If you're in the market for a wagon, others that are worth looking at are the Peugeot 508 GT, a beautiful long-distance cruiser packed with luxury and comfort features such as heated and massage seats, the Mazda 6 wagon, again a premium offer typical of Mazda, and perhaps the best of them all, the Audi RS4 Advant. Stunning performance, luxury and comfort in a beautiful wagon body. It's powered by a 2.9-litre TFSI V6 engine, twin turbochargers. It will run from 0 to 100 in about 4.1 seconds and drives all four wheels through the Quattro system with an 8-speed Tiptronic transmission. It's comforting to know that wagons remain available for buyers that are looking for space and practicality, and there's still a reasonable choice available. I'm Rob Fraser. This is Overdrive across Australia. There's news on the front about these super expensive cars that you can buy, and I'm talking particularly about the Bugatti, where to buy one of those might cost you in the order of $3 million American dollars. Is it a good idea? Well, one company in particular is suggesting it isn't. And to talk about that, we have Brian Smith. G'day, Brian. G'day, David. Volkswagen, the conglomerate, has now pulled out of the Bugatti 
brand name and sold it to one of their offsiders or one of their sub-brands, namely Porsche, but also a separate company, Rimac, uh, that uh, actually has the majority share, 55%. Now, Brian, could you ever understand why someone would want to buy a car that can do 400 kilometres an hour and pay $3 million for the privilege of never being able to do it? Well, David, there's plenty of billionaires in the news at the moment all racing to be the first one into space. So, yes, I can see it. They they need things to conspicuously spend their money on, and supercars are a, are a, um, a sort of traditional approach, aren't they? Yachts, supercars, and I guess now space travel. David, of course, a while back, we uh, many years ago, we uh, interviewed someone who had a McLaren F1 and, uh, you know, had a, a great love of motorsport but uh, I think one of the traditions too I guess is billionaires and millionaires writing these things off so I guess um, <laughs> the ability to to say that you've written off a Bugatti Rimac uh, supercar I guess is just around the corner the guy we interviewed also had his private racetrack but it never had a straight and I've driven on it quite a few times it never has a straight that you are ever going to get near 400 kilometres an hour. The, the McLaren F1 might have only done 300, I don't know. But is it a good image to Volkswagen? Now, you can see it in things like Tesla sending a mock car into space as a PR. Elon Musk has never spent money on traditional marketing companies but he does do a whole pile of stunts. So it might have been good. Did a Bugatti Chiron uh, with its V16, what is it? I can't remember, 8-litre, four-turbocharged, which has this potential to do this exotic speed. Was that ever good for Volkswagen to say, hey, we're part of that? It's a great question, David, because uh, I think you – generally only see them spoken about and talked about in the media when someone crashes them. You know, I, I think the last time I read about a Bugatti, it was because a Bugatti owner had driven it into a lake. And, uh, and, and so, so I guess, yes, maybe in the any sort of um, uh, publicity is good publicity department, perhaps, but I, I had never associated Bugatti with VW, the, the owner of all of these conglomerates never interests me. It's the brand and what the brand says, and it's a separate vehicle. It doesn't, you know, knowing that there's a Bugatti out there that costs millions of dollars doesn't make me more likely to want to buy a VW, for example. So I, I doubt it, David. I, I think it's just a, you know, to have some kind of special brand um, to attract, you know, wealthy playthings i suppose perhaps the new ownership will give them the chance to build a wider range of cars including a, a twenty-five thousand dollar hatchback so that you can <laughs> cash in on the name a bugatti hatchback see that that would destroy the brand though that's the problem i want to know you know they're, they're not really rimac at least is thinking about some uh, uh, electric vehicles but it's again why in 2020 or 2021 would anybody be you know building and designing um, you know, high-performance uh, petrol cars. And that was the first part of Brian's thoughts on this issue. Next week, we will take up the story on what a real road test should be. You're listening to Overdrive. 
Following a comprehensive update in August 2020, Toyota has further upgraded the safety and styling of its best-selling Land Cruiser Prado large SUV range, including new active safety technology on lower variants, while boosting the visual appeal of the family off-roader. The safety of the entry-level GX and GXL variants has been bolstered with the addition of blind spot monitoring and rear cross-traffic alert. It's standard along with the existing Toyota Safety Sense features. All Prados are powered by the 2.8-litre four-cylinder turbo diesel engine, produces 150 kilowatts and 500 newton meters that's mated exclusively to a six-speed automatic transmission and a full-time four-wheel drive system. Given that we can't travel overseas at the moment, touring Australia is possibly the best option for family holidays. And the 150-litre fuel tank in the Prado means you can easily go 1,000 kilometres or more before you refill. The Prado will also tow three tonnes and has excellent four-wheel drive capability along with heaps of aftermarket accessories. Priced from 60830 for the five-seat GX entry-level model, through to 87800 for the Kakadu plus the usual cost. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Alan Finlay, John Reed, Brian Smith, Rob Fraser and Paul Just for their help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For previous programs and more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or the programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. And of course, there's always our Facebook site, Overdrive City Driven Media, including that cartoon we mentioned in the program. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.